As we prepare to open God's word, let us first pray that he would bless it to us. Our Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to come together as your people this evening to hear from you out of your word. I pray that you will illumine your word for us by your spirit so that we may more fully understand the truths found in it. Help us to have ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive what you set before us this evening in Holy Scripture. Help us to never take for granted the great blessing of your word, for it is our daily bread and your very revelation of yourself to us. We pray that you will be honored by the reading and teaching of your word, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who died, was raised, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Amen. You may be seated. Our text today will be Romans 8, 31 through 34, so please open up your Bibles there. That'll be between the book of Acts and the book of 1 Corinthians, and it'll be on page uh, 1201 of many of the Pew Bibles. And let us pay careful attention as we read, for this is God's own word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So before we start to look at the intricacies of uh, Romans uh, 8, 31 through 34, I wanted to give us an illustration from the Old Testament that is going to help us with the main theme of this passage. Um, it comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, now you don't need to turn there. I'll give us some context, um, and then we'll read three verses out of, out of uh, chapter 6 that'll um, help us understand what we want to learn from this passage today. So in 2 Kings 6, uh, the, the king of Assyria was coming up against the, the uh, army of Israel, But every time that the king of Assyria tried to go against the king of Israel, Elisha, the prophet, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel of where uh, the king of Assyria was going to attack. The king of Assyria started to get very upset about this, and so he asked his advisors, uh, who of you is the traitor among us? Who's who's telling them where we're going to be? And his advisors uh, told him, that uh, it's not a traitor among us, rather it's Elisha who keeps telling uh, the king of Israel where we're going to be. And so instead of trying to find the Israelites, the king of Assyria instead finds where Elisha is, the city that he's living in, and he surrounds the city uh, with his entire army. And so that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, that is, uh, Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? 
He, Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what we want to get uh, from this text today, uh, I pray that God will open our eyes to see that God is on our side, such that we can say that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. That is the main theme of our passage today, that God is for us, and therefore it does not matter who is against us. And so as we, uh, as we look through our text today, Romans 8, 31 through 34, we want to consider this text in three main points, namely God's power to protect us, God's justification to acquit us, and God's Son to intercede for us. And we'll start with God's power to protect us in verses 31 through 32. But we actually run into a roadblock really, really early on in this passage. Because in verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? So if we want to move forward in this passage, we need to know what these things are that we're responding to. As many of you may know, our Heidelberg Catechism is often divided into three main sections, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh, We understand that we need to know our guilt, we need to know our sin and misery, and we need to know that we have been given grace in the midst of that, and then we need to know how we are to be grateful for that grace that has been given to us. Well, similarly, the book of Romans is often divided up into those same three main sections. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans are often put under guilt. Chapters 4 through 11 are put under grace. And chapters 12 through the end are put under gratitude. So as we come to our passage today in Romans 8, we see that we are in the midst of the section on grace. So Paul has already gone on uh, to show us how we are all guilty as humans before God. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, we are guilty of Uh, sinning against all of God's holy commandments of never having kept any of them. This is the plight of every single human that has been born ever since Adam and Eve. However, as as we're in Romans 8 now, we have seen that even in the midst of our guilt, even in the midst of our sinfulness, God has come to us in grace. And we see this Uh, this understanding of God's grace sort of crescendo at the very beginning of chapter 8, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, this is what Paul is referring to at the start of our passage. What then shall we say to these things? These things are the fact that we are guilty before God But yet grace has come in the midst of that, so that those who are united to Christ by faith, there is no condemnation for them. So what then shall we say to that? Paul says, uh, starting with, if God is for us, who can be against us? This starts uh, a series of rhetorical questions that he asks throughout this passage. Each one of these questions is is very clearly meant to be uh, answered with no no one, or nothing. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? The real answer is 
no one. No one can be against us. Now, what this doesn't mean is that no one will try to oppose us. We see even in our culture today, uh, especially from unbelievers, there is great, um, there is great pressure from, uh, from around us, from unbelievers who do not believe in God's word, who do not believe in, um, in God at all. So men will be against us in a sense. But just as we saw in the passage with Elisha in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if there is a whole army against us, if God is on our side. This is what Paul means by if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter who's against us if God is for us. And we can think, um, even though this is later on in chapter 8, in verses 38 through 39, Paul gives a list of, of things that could never separate us from the love of Christ. Similarly, this list can be applied to those who can be against us. So who can be against us if God is for us? Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can be against us if God is for us. And how do we know that God is for us, and what are the benefits of God being for us? Paul talks about this in verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How could someone say that God is not for us when we see that God gave us his greatest possession in his own son? to sacrifice himself for us. And this wasn't something that God did, God did unwillingly. We see in passages like Acts 2.23 that Christ's suffering was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Acts 4.27-28, through 28, we are told that it was God's hand and God's plan that predestined Christ's suffering. This was not something that God did unwillingly. It was his will, it was his pleasure to send his son for our salvation. Similarly, it was even Christ's pleasure to go to the cross for us. It was his will. We see in John 10, 17 through 18, that Christ tells us that he, does, he, he lays down his life of his own accord. No one takes his life from him, but rather he lays it down willingly. And we think, when we think of people like Elisha and the other Old Testament saints, they were often quite sure of God's power to protect them and God's care for them as, as, as God's covenant people. And they really only had instances of physical salvation, like in wartime. Uh, that was the main way that they saw God's salvation and that God's care for them. However, how much, how much more can we be sure that God is for us when we can actually look back to Christ's, uh, Christ's sacrifice for us, that God sent his son for us, we can look back and see that God certainly is on our side. We have that he would give us his greatest possession for our salvation. And therefore, Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This makes us think of Heidelberg number 26, question and answer number 26, where the, the first article of the Apostles' Creed is, is 
um, is explained. We see in the Heidelberg, uh, in the answer, we're told, I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. So if God gave us his greatest possession, we can be assured that he will also give us whatever we need for body and soul, that he will turn to our good whatever adversity he sends upon us in this veil of tears. And he is able to do this because he is powerful. He is almighty God. And if we start to look at some, some scriptures uh, of what we are told that um, we are given by God on, on top of the giving of his son, we see Romans 8.17 where we are told that we are co-heirs with Christ. Thus we receive the same inheritance. Just as Christ raised from the dead, we too, when we die, will raise from the dead. Just as Christ received a glorified body, we too will receive glorified bodies. We too will have everlasting life. And thinking of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, we're told that we have been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness, and we have been given his precious and great promises. So even beyond God giving us his greatest possession, we know that he will give us anything that we need, if he, can get, if he gives us his son, he will give us whatever we need for body and for soul. He'll give us whatever we need pertaining to life and godliness. And he even give us, gives us his covenant promises that as his people, he promises that he will be our God and we will be his people. He also gives us the great benefit of justification, which moves us to, to verse 33 in our second point, God's justification to acquit us. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. First off, we have to think, who actually has the right to bring a charge against us? You know, in our, in our confession of sin in the morning service, we, we, our confession of sin is, is largely based on Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, David confesses that it's against God and God only that he has sinned. Now, this is not to say that we don't sin against sinners as well, but it's God's commandments that we have broken. We have primarily sinned against him. Therefore, he is the one who has a right to bring a charge against us. And yet, even though he is the judge of all, and he has the right to bring any charge against us, and he is the one who knows everything that we have done wrong. He knows all of our sin. Instead, he does not bring a charge against us, but rather brings those charges that could be brought against us against his son on the cross. That is what Christ took upon himself on the cross. He took upon himself the sin and the punishment that those sins deserve. And therefore, instead of bringing, bringing a charge against us, as Paul says, it is God who justifies. God justifies us instead of bringing a charge against us. Such that whenever we come to any trial in our lives, especially when it comes to accusation in this context, we can be assured of our justification in the midst of it. 
And anyone who wants to bring a charge against us must realize that every charge has been answered by Christ in his cross. We can think about Revelation 12, verses 10 through 11, uh, because as we think throughout Scripture, who is the one who continually wants to bring charges against us? It's the devil. He is, he's understood to be the accuser of the brethren. But Revelation 12, 10 through 11 tells us that the devil will be cast into the lake of fire. So even those who want to bring false accusations against us, even those who want to bring charges against us that have already been dealt with, they will be dealt with so that not even false charges may be brought against us. No charge at all can be brought against us. And every charge has been answered in Christ. And it's Christ who intercedes for us that, that he indeed has took it upon the, taken upon himself these charges, which is what we see in verse 34 and our, our third point, God's Son to intercede for us. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So first off, who is to condemn? We can think about what, what we already brought up earlier, to, earlier this evening, Romans, 8, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So earlier in this passage, Paul has already answered this question. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who is to condemn? Absolutely no one is to condemn. As we just saw, the one who has the right con to condemn, the Father, the judge, he does not condemn us. He justifies us. But Paul still goes on in the rest of verse 34 to tell us why exactly we are not condemned. And he gives four reasons uh, pertaining to, to what Christ, Je Christ Jesus has done. He first says that Christ Jesus is the one who died. So what does that have to do with no condemnation being against us? Well, first off, as we've said, in his death, he took upon himself all of the punishment for our sins, all of the condemnation that could be possibly brought against us. He took it upon himself. So in his death, we see that there is no condemnation left for us, for the condemnation has already been carried out, and it was borne by Christ on the cross. By his death, we are justified. There is no longer any punishment due to us. There is no condemnation with his death. And Paul goes on to say more than that, who was raised? What does Christ's resurrection have to say about the fact that we are no longer condemned? Well, first off, his resurrection, um, in his resurrection, he conquers death for us so that not even death can be against us. As we, saw if God is, as we saw at the beginning of our passage, if God is for us, who can be against us? In Christ's resurrection, we, sh we are assured that not even death can be against us. We will be resurrected. We will receive glorified bodies. But not only is his resurrection an assurance that we will, we will be resurrected and death has no hold on us, but his res resurrection is also an assurance that his death truly was able to do 
what it was meant to do, our salvation and justification. We see many times, uh, or, or at least a, a good amount of times in Scripture, we see people be raised from the dead. We see Lazarus, we see Elijah raise people from the dead in the Old Testament. But what's different about Christ's resurrection? No one raised him from the dead. He raised himself from the dead by his own power. This shows that he has the power to raise himself. This shows that he is indeed God. And if he is God, this means that he could actually take our punishment on the cross. When we think of, uh, of a mere human, why would a mere human be able to take upon himself all of, of, of the wrath of God on the cross when we, when we know that the punishment for sin is e- eternity in hell? How would, a, how would a mere human be able to take that upon himself on the cross? But Christ's resurrection shows us that he is God, and therefore he has the power to take upon himself the, the complete punishment for our sin while he is on the cross. So his resurrection shows that his, his death really accomplished our salvation and justification. He really could accomplish our, our salvation on the cross because he is true God and true man. And Paul then goes on to say that Christ is at the right hand of God. Now, being at the right hand of the Father means uh, this is a symbol of authority and highest honor. That Christ has been raised to a a great symbol of authority and highest honor. That he has the authority to continue to plead uh, our, our salvation. And the, the, uh, we don't see that in this passage, but um, we know this is the case by other passage, passages, that when he's at the right hand of God, that he's seated at the right hand of God. This means that he indeed has finished the work of redemption. Just as he said in his last breath, breath on the cross, it is finished. Him sitting down at the right hand of God again assures us that the work of salvation, that the work of redemption has been completed. And Paul lastly goes on to talk about how Christ is indeed interceding for us. We can think of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where the author of Hebrews talks about how we have a great high priest in Christ. He tells us, Uh, that Christ always lives to make intercession on our behalf. This is what Paul is getting at here at the end of verse 34. That Christ is always, as our great high priest, interceding for us. He has the holes in his hands. He has the holes in his feet. He has the hole in his side to testify to the fact that he has indeed paid for our sins through his cross. Therefore, this is another aspect also of how Christ's resurrection benefits us. He's always alive and ready at at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. And by being at the Father's right hand, he is always right there to be our advocate and to intercede for us. And so we look at this, as we look at this passage as a whole, again, we go back to what Paul said in the beginning. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Can, can our need of, of, of other things be against us? No, because God even gave his, his greatest possession to us. He will give us all that we need. Can someone uh, be against us in the sense of bringing a charge against us? No, because God has justified us. Can someone try to condemn us? No, because Christ Jesus was condemned in our place. Therefore, we must take heart. For not only do we, not need, do we need not fear specifically condemnation and accusation, but we, not need, we need not fear anything if God is on our side. For nothing can succeed against us. Just as Elisha said in the Old Testament, those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. God is on our side. And therefore, through God's power to protect us, his justification to acquit us and his son to intercede for us, we know that God is on our side and no one can succeed against us. And so finally, this, this evening, as a closing encouragement, I would like to read Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9 for us to drive home what we learned in this passage this evening. You don't need to turn there, but I want you to listen to see this picks up on the themes, this picks up on exactly what we learned today, and it'll be a great encouragement to you. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we were able to hear from you out of your word this evening. We pray that we will not forget what we have learned today. And as we face trials and temptations in this life, we pray that we would remember that you are on our side, and therefore nothing can truly be against us. Help us to live our lives in this confidence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.